guys here. Get your hands on your heads. Get off the barn. Get on the wall. Come on, move. Move. So this is a scene from William Friedkin's 1971 Best Picture winner, The French Connection. We've got two NYPD narcotics detectives, uh, Jimmy Popeye Doyle, played by Gene Hackman, and Buddy Cloudy Russo, played by Roy Scheider, and they're conducting a midday raid on a Harlem bar. Come on, move! What are you looking at? All right, bring it here. Get your hands out of your pockets. They don't have a warrant. They don't have probable cause. What's my name? Doyle. What? Mr. Doyle. Come here. In fact, the entire raid is a ruse, a, a cover to get information from a snitch. But the show they choose to put on is telling. Two white cops charging into a black business in a black neighborhood to show them who's boss. Want that hand broken? Get it up there. This scene is not an outlier in Gotham cinema. In the early 1970s, as the city was beginning its freefall into urban chaos, a new kind of New York cop strode onto the screen, a loose cannon. He followed his gut, not the rules. He was looking out for the citizens, not the scumbags. And he was the only kind of cop who could get the job done. But in this same period, the real NYPD was overrun with corruption, graft, brutality, and racism, and a long-running refusal to allow any kind of oversight outside the department. So how do these on-screen depictions square with the lawlessness of their real-life counterparts? And how did those images contribute to the kind of cowboy policing that continues to define the NYPD and plenty of other police departments to this very day? Today, we're going to explore that tension. To help us sort it out, we have the Undefeated's culture critic, Soraya Nadia McDonald. Oh, wow. Okay. We have film writer, Zach Vasquez. Okay. Uh, yeah, no, okay. And we have author, podcaster, and MSNBC host, Chris Hayes. Three, two, one. I'm Jason Bailey. And this is Fun City Cinema, a podcast about New York and the movies that made it. What's the hurry? You can see a couple of shows. Visit the top of the Empire State Building. I love this dirty town. God, I hate this town. Welcome to New York. <laughs> what will happen to Bettenhurst if everybody ran around and did their own fucking thing, huh? You want to live in a toilet like Manhattan or the Bronx? Stole it right off the street from you, huh? Yeah, well, that's New York. Well, what kind of a life is this? Where the hell do you want to move to? This goddamn city. Fun City Cinema. By Jason Bailey and Mike Hull. You just flush it right down the fucking toilet. I'm walking here! I'm walking here! It's gonna be another goddamn New York day. You watch out, because these streets are evil. The streets aren't safe in this town. We're trying to run a city, not a goddamn democracy. One city, my ass! As you see, we're flying over an island. A city, a particular city. And this is a story of a number of people, and a story also of the city itself. You know, it's important to understand right up front that the New York movie and the New York cop movie are bound together from the jump. Because what you're hearing now is a clip from the prototype for the New York cop movie, Jules Dassin's The Naked City. And The Naked City made history. It was not photographed in a studio. Quite the contrary. 
It made history because it was the first major studio production in decades that was shot entirely in New York City. The American film industry began in New York, but it migrated to California in the 1910s, and that's a whole other story for another episode. But suffice it to say, after that, it became all but impossible to shoot more than a few inserts, maybe a scene or two, for a major movie in New York. So New York stories, of which there were still plenty, were shot on fake New York streets, constructed on studio backlots, but not the Naked City. Its producer, Mark Hellinger, was a legendary New York newspaper man and Broadway columnist. And he decided to shoot the film as he explains in that opening voiceover. On the streets, in the apartment houses, in the skyscrapers of New York itself. And the story they shot on those streets was a cop story. Screenwriter Malvin Wald shadowed police officers, sat in on lineups, hung out in forensics labs, and dug through police files to land on the case he would base his script on. The picture's closing credits would include a title card expressing, quote, deep gratitude to the mayor and police commissioner of New York City. Without their splendid cooperation, this film could not have been made. But by the time The Naked City was released in 1948, both the NYPD and the mayor's office were on the brink of an earth-shaking scandal. A Kings County grand jury indicted dozens of police officers who were on the payroll of gambling kingpin Harry Gross. In the investigation that followed, more than 500 NYPD officers chose early retirement over the risk of being called before the grand jury. Both Police Commissioner William O'Brien and Mayor William O'Dwyer resigned in disgrace. And there was another significant event in the department in the early 1950s, May of 1953, to be exact. The department created a Civilian Complaint Review Board, the CCRB for short, to investigate complaints of police brutality and corruption in the city. Outside bodies had been pushing for such a board for decades. The problem was the CCRB had no civilian members. It was comprised of three police officials who reported their findings and made their recommendations directly to the police commissioner. And the NYPD didn't exactly have a history of strict self-discipline. An interdepartment study around this time found that during the two previous decades, only 20% of complaints resulted in even a disciplinary hearing. The other 80% of complaints were dismissed or resulted in a reprimand, maybe a fine, a day's pay or less. More than 200 of the cases involved in this survey, according to historian Marilyn S. Johnson, were assaults on civilians, frequently by intoxicated police officers. The internal CCRB did not make a dent in the NYPD's culture of brutality and racial injustice, particularly as the civil rights movement began to pick up steam. And then came the Harlem riot of 1964. Over six nights in July of 1964, 4,000 New Yorkers protested the murder of 15-year-old African-American James Powell by Lieutenant Thomas Gilligan. The uprising resulted in 465 arrests, 118 injuries, and one death. We urge people to go to their homes, yet many who sought to go to their homes met police roadblocks. And uh, when they told the police that they were trying to get home and they lived in that area, the police said, I don't care where you live, you get moving. And then they were confronted with Billy Clubs. Ted Weiss, a Manhattan City Council member, had attempted to introduce legislation to establish an all-civilian review board the previous year. The NYPD's union 
the Patrolman's Benevolent Association, or PBA, mounted a campaign to squash it, with its president, John Cassis, insisting that the civil rights activists pressing for such a committee were communist agitators. While NYPD Commissioner Michael J. Murphy argued, I am certain that the police of this city are too conscientious to fail to take action when necessary and too courageous to walk away from any dangerous incident. But the effect of such a board as proposed would create situations where police officers would hesitate to act, fearful of the second-guessers and the Monday morning quarterbacks. The City Affairs Committee shelved the bill. But the idea of a civilian review board was not going away. I'm John Lindsay. I was born in New York City, and I've lived here all my life. And I'm running for mayor because I know that our city is in a crisis. John V. Lindsay came out strongly in favor of a civilian review board when he ran for mayor in 1965. After his election, he proposed the kind of compromise you might expect from a man who labeled himself with the now incongruent description of liberal Republican. He suggested adding four civilians to the three-member board, which would then pass along their non-binding recommendations to the commissioner. The PBA rejected even this defanged idea, fighting it in court and making the proposal a voting referendum in the next election. The police union mobilized its opposition. President John Cassis announced, I'm sick and tired of giving in to minority groups with their whims and their gripes and their shouting. The morning after the vote, the New York Daily News headline summed it up as succinctly as usual. Board is clobbered. But nevertheless, change was in the wind. On June 13, 1966, the Supreme Court, led by Chief Justice Earl Warren, handed down their decision in the matter of Miranda v. Arizona, the landmark decision that guaranteed criminal defendants would be made aware of their rights during arrests. It was a long overdue check on the aggression of police in New York and around the country. And as the protest movements of the late 60s intensified, public perception, at least amongst some of the public, began to shift. The actions of local authorities in Chicago, Birmingham, Detroit, and Los Angeles brought out-of-control cops into prime time. Of course, these pendulums swing back and forth. By 1968, Richard Nixon was fine-tuning his law-and-order presidential campaign message aimed squarely at his silent majority. In recent years, crime in this country has grown nine times as fast as population. I pledge to you, the wave of crime is not going to be the wave of the future in America. And the forces of law and order were closing ranks. In August of 1968, as those Nixon ads were running on New York television, a group of Brooklyn policemen announced the formation of the Law Enforcement Group of New York, an ultra-right-wing organization whose seven-point list of demands included, quote, a grand jury investigation of alleged coddling of criminals by the criminal courts, wholehearted support of the United States senators who are trying to prevent another war in court, the removal of civilians from clerical duties in police stations, and, of course, the abolition of the police department's Civilian Complaint Review Board. The law enforcement group didn't just use words. On September 4th, a group of 150 white men, many of them off-duty and out-of-uniform NYPD officers, attacked a group of Black Panther Party members and white sympathizers on the sixth floor of the Brooklyn Criminal Court. The mob threw punches and kicks and swung blackjacks at the Panthers and their supporters, leaving them bloodied and injured. Some shouted, white power, and white tigers eat black panthers. Several of the men were wearing presidential campaign buttons for candidate George Wallace. By early 1969, the law enforcement group claimed a membership of more than 1,000 
NYPD officers. This was the state of New York policing heading into the 1970s. You know, the great French filmmaker Francois Truffaut has a famous dictum that it's impossible to make a truly anti-war film. And I would argue that the same is mostly true for movies about cops. This is film writer Zach Vasquez. You can show the most corrupt cop possible. You can show them doing the, the worst stuff. You can paint them as, you know, the most pitiful people imaginable. But at the end of the day, there's just something so inherently enthralling about all of the attendant virtues and vices that come with policing, whether it be just purely the power that they wield or, you know, the obsession with which the job entails. It's just too inherently magnetic, I think, to ever really make something that is fully anti-police, in a police drama, at least. Initially, of course, pro-cop was the go-to point of view. The New York cop movies that followed The Naked City, like The Sleeping City, The Killer That Stalked New York, and The Tattooed Stranger, were cut from the same cloth. No-nonsense procedurals in which square-jawed NYPD detectives went by the book and got their man. And that idea extended into television as well, with early cop shows like Dragnet and the television adaptation of The Naked City. It falls under the umbrella of a term you've probably been hearing a lot lately. Copaganda. That's Soraya Nadia MacDonald, culture critic for The Undefeated. Which basically means, you know, that the portrayals that we see of police in popular culture aren't necessarily neutral. Arguably nothing is neutral. But the way that their image shows up in pop culture specifically is very much tied to sort of offering like this really powerful layer of support in terms of image crafting when it comes to the police. So much to the point that often you will have police departments that are sort of like actively involved, whether it's through lending equipment or acting as consultants or writers, any number of ways that they sort of contribute to shaping like what we know as copaganda. Post-Miranda, this remained the basic approach, though with some acknowledgement, often begrudging, of the new rules that had to be abided by. You have the right to consult an attorney before speaking to the police and to have an attorney present during any questioning now or in the future. Do you understand? Is that a lawyer? That's right. An attorney is a lawyer. What do I want a lawyer for? I did it. That's a scene from Madigan, a 1968 NYPD movie directed by Don Siegel, who would direct Dirty Harry three years later. And in this film, he's already exploring the tension between how things should be done by an officer of the law and how they typically are done. And that Madigan, he was bound to get caught in a ringer sooner or later. Oh, Madigan's a good cop, Tony. Doesn't always go by the book. I like the book, Charlie. That same year, Siegel directed Coogan's Bluff, his first film with actor Clint Eastwood. This is the city of New York. We've got a system. Not much, but we're fond of it. Three years later, they would collaborate on Dirty Harry. Set in San Francisco, but another story of a tough, stubborn, street justice-centered cop who wasn't going to be hamstrung by pissy liberals and their rules and restrictions. There was something in the air in 1971 because two months before Dirty Harry, 20th Century Fox released The French Connection. (laughs) 
Like the Naked City, the French Connection was based on a real case and real police officers, NYPD narco detectives Eddie Egan and Sonny Grosso. They're rough-and-tumble street cops, especially the Egan character, renamed Popeye Doyle and played by Gene Hackman. He's seen as the hero, but with some reservations. He's a good cop, basically a good cop. He's got good hunches every once in a while. All right, fine, give fine, him a fine, chance. Fine. He also beats the absolute shit out of his suspects. Oh! That's enough, don't kill him. That's enough. And then there's this. You dumb guinea. How the hell did I know he had a knife? Never trust a nigger. He could have been white. Never trust anyone. Casual racism, which to me is essential for any movie that wants to even, you know, approach the subject of crime and policing from any angle. In his memoir, The Friedkin Connection, the film's director, William Friedkin, writes of this moment. When Popeye used the N-word, African-American audiences laughed because they saw it as an honest portrayal of police attitudes. And that scams, frankly. Just as there is a certain truthfulness that you get from kind of hearing this guy like huffing and puffing as he's running down the street, you know, for what feels like forever. <laughs> There's also, you know, I would say that same sort of truthful element about this man's character and what he thinks of black people and black people who he sees as criminal. Like you, you sort of, you get, I think, sort of a fuller picture of the story that he is also telling himself about his own job and how he does it. And that is key. The idea of how this police detective sees himself and how this movie sees him. Because the year after The French Connection, you've got a fascinating counterpoint, almost an answer record, in the Barry Shear film Across 110th Street. In that movie, a tough guy white cop, played by Anthony Quinn, is paired with a young, by-the-book black cop, played by Yafik Koto. And what's interesting about putting these films into conversation is how the Quinn character uses the same tactics Hackman's Popeye Doyle does, but with little success. You don't have to answer any questions without a lawyer. You're entitled to an attorney. Come on, get me a lawyer and stick you dead on your ass. This kind of thing went out with prohibition. No, you can't go around Belgium. I'm sick and tired of your liberal bullshit. You better make up your mind. Are you a cop or one of them social workers? All right, Captain! Go back to 1940! Pull out the parlor cave, blow up the whole goddamn community. Look, the way I work gets results. I don't hear him saying a goddamn thing. Even Popeye Doyle himself doesn't always get results. You know, everybody remembers the slam-bang car chase in The French Connection or that great scene on the subway platform. But we forget the picture ends with the key villain disappearing without a trace while Popeye mistakes a federal officer for that fleeing bad guy and shoots him down. In other words, he's not some brilliant super cop, and his tactics are often ineffective. There's an ambiguity about the character that fades from the memory, much as the complexities of Dirty Harry Callahan are mostly forgotten in favor of... You've got to ask yourself one question. Do I feel lucky? Well, do you, punk? But that ambiguity can be read in another, less generous way. In her review of The French Connection, Pauline Kael wrote, The movie presents him as the most ruthlessly lawless of characters. And yet, here is where the basic amorality comes through. 
shows that this is the kind of man it takes to get the job done. It's the vicious bastard who gets the results. When Popeye walks into a bar and harasses blacks, part of the audience can say, that's a real pig. And another part of the audience can say, that's the only way to deal with those people. Waltz around with them and you get nowhere. I imagine that the people who put this movie together just naturally think in this commercially convenient double way. This right-wing, left-wing, take-your-choice cynicism is total commercial opportunism, passing itself off as an existential view. That ambiguity was jettisoned entirely from the picture's spiritual sequel, The Seven Ups, released two years later. It reunited most of the French Connection's key players, with the exception of Hackman and Friedkin. Roy Scheider moves into the focal role of Buddy Manucci, again inspired by real-life cop Sonny Grosso, who gets a story credit. Buddy leads a team of rule-bending, renegade cops. They're called the Seven Ups because most of their callers get seven-year-and-up sentences. Any concerns with their methods are voiced and dismissed within the first ten minutes of the movie. What's the matter with you? I don't like it. I don't like that way of doing business. Are you going to start that stuff again, Jerry? They're not correct. It's not what a cop is supposed to do. When you start out with that crap, where do you go? You forget about warrants? You start flaking guys? Is this or isn't it the first good collar we've made on that pair of mutts in all the time we've been looking to drop them? Yes or no? I'm sure it is, but that's not... But nothing. No buts. Those two wise guys are going away, and not for any 60 days, years, seven or up. Buddy's guys, Buddy's methods, I don't want to know about them. I don't even want to hear about them. PC's happy, so am I. He wants more results, so do I. Clear? And that's a necessary setup, because midway through the movie, one of the seven-ups gets killed. So the rest of the gang spends the rest of the movie beating, threatening, and terrorizing anyone who might have information. We can do this the easy way or the hard way. I've been here before. Do what you gotta do. I didn't talk then. And I ain't talking now. You son of a bitch! Get up! Get up here! The tactics are wildly illegal and fly explicitly in the face of the direct orders of their superiors. But hey, they get results. Take it easy. With... <laughs> no. Please don't hurt her. No. All right. No. I don't know. I tell you, I don't know. All I know is about the kidnappings. And the Seven Ups doesn't even end with the question mark of the French connection. Buddy Minucci simply hunts the bad guy down and fills him with bullets. Even across 110th Street, about as critical an indictment of old school policing as you'll find in New York cinema of the 1970s, brings the conflict at its center to a head with this extraordinary exchange after the young black cop has found out that his old white partner is on the mob's payroll. Pope, I want to retire. And I don't want you to use anything you heard of. No, I want you to stop patronizing me. What the hell are you talking about? 
Well, you really are a racist son of a bitch, aren't you, Mattelli? Will you cut out that racist crap? Because I'm black. I'm, I'm, I'm going to blow the whistle on you, is that it? Just, I just thought that... When are you going to start looking at me as a cop? The implication is clear. He's a cop first and black second. And being a cop in New York means, if not outright complicity, at the very least, looking the other way. And to get us into that, I want to bring in my co-host and producer, Mike Hall. Mike, because you're, you know, you're very well steeped in sort of the histories of protest movements and stuff. Were people protesting the things that cops were doing in New York City and elsewhere at this time? Was there any version of the kind of pushback that we're seeing in the streets now? Yeah, and there had been for a long time. You know, there was this real culture clash at this point. You got to think. I mean, when's French Connection coming out, right? So, like, early 70s at this point, you're looking at 10 years that America had been kind of forced to pay attention to protests, starting with the civil rights protest, you know, which had been going on before that. But if you think, like, early 60s, that's when it really became a national issue in a lot of ways. And what do you see over and over and over? You see the cops beating people, attacking people with dogs, water hoses. And, you know, plenty of people had an opinion about that. People didn't like it at the time. And then that becomes the the Vietnam protests. And with the Vietnam protests, you actually see people being killed. Kent State, Jackson State, Chicago, 1968. The cops absolutely riot at the DNC. On live television. On live television. Everybody got to watch it. And not only that, but the corruption among the NYPD was known. Uh, it's just the people who knew about it, nobody listened to. That's the reason why you see Popeye beating the shit out of black and brown people throughout the movie, because nobody listened to their complaints. So there, you know, there is this real culture of what it takes to get the job done versus really kind of like rethinking what the job is. And, and to me, like this is really not present in any of these movies. It's you see a you see some of the Miranda stuff, but they don't take it seriously at all. You know, when they talk about people who disagree with their methods, they're summarily dismissed. Waxer cuckoos or hippies, if not commies, getting sort of summarily tossed out of the chief's office. Yeah, there's a very aggrieved kind of feeling. You know, they're um, we call that a uh, snowflake. <laughs> so um, in real life, my favorite example is the Fear City pamphlet. Right. Right. You've seen I, that. I, know, I mean, I know about it from my research. I don't know if people know about it now. I mean, I think it's, it, you know, it's always it's important to 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 place it in the context of like the financial meltdown of New York City of, of the mid 1970s. And the the idea that like. The city was out of money. It was on the the brink of bankruptcy. Mayor Abe Beam was told, like, you have to cut X amount of dollars from city services, no matter from where. They need to be cuts across the board. And that meant losing, you know, that meant cutting some some police. That meant cutting some fire. That meant, you know, those were among the city services that had to be cut. And the cops lost their fucking minds, they made these to like hand out to tourists, right? Like these were not these were not intended to scare residents. Yes, no, that's right. And that was part of their kind of whole political idea, right? Was if they can somehow right. cut tourism, you know, then because people are too scared to come to New York City, then that will, I guess, make their political point and, and somehow having even less money will mean they'll keep the cops. I don't I'm just like the the logic <laughs> of it is, is they didn't think it they didn't think it all the way through. I'll, I'll say that. It's yes. not clear to me, but it is some amazing marketing. And supposedly they printed up two million of these things, but didn't actually hand out very many of them. Because as soon as people started finding out about them, New Yorkers were not particularly happy about it. Can I read you some of it? Please do. 
they suggest that you shouldn't av- you shouldn't ride the subway in any way whatsoever, right? Suggesting that in Midtown Manhattan, you may at only slight risk ride the buses during daylight hours only. <laughs> they literally say not to be outside after 6 p.m. They suggest holding your purse with both hands at all times. If you're driving, put everything in the trunk of the car, but do it before you get there because if people see you park and then put your stuff in the trunk, it's as good as gone. Don't roll down your windows. Keep the doors <laughs> locked, right? And then at the very end, they tack on this thing about minding your exits everywhere you're at so you don't burn up in a fire because they're also cutting the fire department. Right. But that's like point like 11, which is clear they had 10 points about... The aggrieved police, and then they were like, shit, we should put something about the firefighters on there, too. Yeah. It, it's it's very dumb, but it has an amazing Grim Reaper on the cover, and now I have that as a coffee cup, and I love it. <laughs> but the important thing about the Fear City pamphlet is how it illustrates this pattern, right? You said it. This was not over a review board. This was not any kind of oversight. This was a budget dispute. Right. Everything in the city was being cut. Right. So it's not like Mayor Beam came out and was like, oh, the cops are racist and and they beat up black people. I saw it in a movie. He's saying, we got no more fucking money. What do you want me to pay you in subway tokens? I can't even (laughs) afford those. Right. Now, when we do get to actually talk about civilian oversight boards, the recommendations they make are usually non-binding. Right. They're being strengthened in some places now. But most of what we're talking about here is fucking paperwork. So it really begs the question, like, what are they so scared of? Right. And and to me, there's a real sense in these movies. You know, I feel like nobody knows how racist white people are better than white people. Right. Because, like, my whole life, people just say racist shit to me and just assume, like, I'm going to be okay with it. People I don't know, obviously, because if they knew me, they wouldn't know not to say right. those things to me, right? <laughs> so, like, I feel like... I have a sense of how racist white people are that a lot of people don't. And watching these movies and listening to them talk like this, it really feels like there's very much something like that going on where, like, they know how dirty they are. Yeah. And they don't want us to find out. Yeah. So, like, it's hard not to feel like if we actually had a review process with any teeth, it would really cause a lot of problems. Right. For everybody on every level. Right. Because there's been this, you know, long running assumption that that's just the way business is done. Clear back into like the early parts of the 20th century. Like it was it was a state. There was a phrase for it. It was muss them up. That was the style of policing was muss them up. Yeah. Buddy. And that muss them up policing has been just the way that 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 NYPD business was conducted for so long. And that when it came to it, when it went too far. It was, again, a matter of of your fellow officers look the other way. And when it came to graft, it was a question of, well, your fellow officers look the other way. And when it came to corruption, everybody looks the other way. And there's enough looking the other way that eventually everybody's looking the other way. Well, and that's something that we, again, we see we see in the movies and we absolutely see in real life, which is a problem with these review boards, is that unless cops decide to participate, nothing gets done. It's another one of these kind of creepy overlaps between cops and criminals, right? There's this snitches get stitches ethos that both sides will literally kill their own people over. But occasionally there are snitches who come forward. This seems like the, the point at which we should talk a little bit about the NAP Commission then. Okay, right. One of the attempts at oversight was the NAP Commission. And it was really largely the outgrowths of the actions of Frank Serpico and another cop named David Dirk. In his testimony, Dirk said that anyone who said they didn't know about corruption in the NYPD was willfully ignorant. His main evidence was was that the NAP Commission had documented so much corruption in the six months it had been around, it was impossible to believe the mayor and commissioner 
police commissioner weren't at least ignoring the problem. And the commission really found like there were two main kinds of corruption. They called the perpetrators either grass eaters or meat eaters. Jesus. Right? Which I think is Jesus pretty Christ. hilarious. The grass eaters were like lower level offenders, you know, guys who took free meals, other like little gratuities, you know, um, occasional rub and tug, I'm sure. The meat eaters were more aggressive, right? Those were the guys who like robbed drug dealers. They were extorting people for, for larger takes. Yeah. The important thing they found was that the problem touched every precinct, every borough. Yeah. When you listen to people talk at the NAP Commission and stuff, it really did seem like it was literally every single cop except Frank Serpico <laughs> and this guy Dirk. Literally all of the rest of them. And the NAP Commission made all these recommendations, but if you look at them now, they seem really basic, dude. Right. Improve screening and training. Commanders should be held responsible for the actions of their subordinates. What? Internal affairs. And uh, yeah, yeah. That's <laughs> like one of their main, that's one of their big ones. I can't imagine. The yeah. boss is held responsible when his subordinates fuck up. They suggested having internal affairs and, and undercover basically in every station house to kind of keep an eye on the locals, you mm -hmm. know. But it still remains, it's all being handled internally. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It feels very defanged, but still, you know, how many movies do we see? How many of these different movies are somebody talking shit on the NAP commission? Yeah. Right? Like over and over and over this comes up. So obviously, you know, when you look at news at the time, when you look at interviews at the time, cops were they talk about this stuff like it was apocalyptic. Yeah. And and then when you go and read it and you're like, "All right, well, obviously they're giving out lashes to cops who like give a fucking false parking ticket." <laughs> <laughs> That was just never the case, you know. Yeah. But then after after NAP, we see something that actually pops up in Prince of the City, right, where everyone involved in the NAP commission got fucking promotions, including Whitman Knapp himself, who becomes a federal judge. Mm -hmm. And that's where you get that kind of Lumet kind of um, side eye to the process, right? Because right. it's not like Serpico ends on an up note. No. It's not like, you know, you get to the end of, of Prince of the City and everybody's just like, hey guys, we solved racism. <laughs> you know, I mean, Serpico like went to the Netherlands for 10 years after all this is over. It doesn't really seem in the, in the movies or in real life like any of the people who invest themselves in this process of trying to make this stuff better actually feel any sort of satisfaction. Right. Do you feel like any of them actually feel like they got resolution? I don't... I mean, it certainly hasn't proven to be like a model for for reform. <laughs> I mean, was there ever... Is I mean, because we're still talking about this one guy... 40 plus years later was there ever anyone else to sort of blow the whistle on the department at that kind of a scale the most i guess the most famous example is probably adrian schoolcraft right so oh, two, right, he's right. a yeah, cop yeah, yeah. 2008 2009 and he starts carrying a recorder around and and recording himself at work and and supposedly according to him he had a bunch of suspects uh, basically saying that he was using racial epithets in their interviews and so he started recording to prove that he didn't mm. And what he ended up recording was a bunch of his cop buddies, uh, you know, being crooked. What he actually ends up recording is his bosses kind of encouraging rank and file guys to like rough folks up. You know, this is the 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 stop and frisk era, right, right? Right. So they are, you know, they're really leaning into that and encouraging their guys to lean into that. And they're also reclassifying serious crime to lesser right, kind cooking of, the books. Yeah, yeah, exactly. To make it look like they were having a more positive effect on the neighborhood right, than they right. were, right? Which was an, which was a directive that came from the top. Of course it was. Of course it was. And 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 it's known na nationally uh as kind of part of the quota system, right? They want to show that they are 
making a certain number of arrests, the theory being that that will make that particular crime go down. And if that theory doesn't play out, they just change some numbers to make it look like it does because their funding is based on I don't know. This is a whole that's a, a not even a different episode of this podcast. That's a completely different podcast. There's literally an episode of This American Life about Adrian Skullcraft. So go listen to that. That is really excellent. The Village Voice also did some really great work on it. It's more like a disciplinary issue, you know, than kind of like a, a, a corruption issue, really, in the same kind of, of way that we've been talking about so far. And yet the cops still lose their fucking minds. They go and arrest this. They kick in his door. They arrest this guy. They put him in a psych ward, involuntary psych ward for six days. You know, they absolutely go fucking bananas. Right. They act like they are divinely ordained you know, missionaries of righteousness instead of city employees. They're city employees, right? <laughs> and that pattern of just going apeshit over the slightest provocation is almost funny when the result is a pamphlet like Fear City, right? But the same overreactive tendency is how Jacob Blake gets shot in the back seven times. And that shit ain't funny. impartially respecting the equality of all men and the dignity and worth of every individual. Every day, your life will be on the line, and also your character. You'll need integrity, courage, honesty, compassion, courtesy, perseverance, and patience. You men are now prepared to join the war against crime Put the theory you have learned into practice in the streets. Cindy Lumet's 1973 drama Serpico tells the true story of Frank Serpico, a young cop who enters the force full of goodwill and idealism and quickly finds that everyone around him is on the take. At first, it comes in the form of you know, little things, winking gifts of, for example, free food from neighborhood restaurants. Don't be so fussy. It's free. <laughs> I'm not fussy. I don't know how I'm going to eat this. Charlie's an okay guy. We give him a break on double parking on deliveries. But soon, Serpico discovers that his entire precinct is crooked, lifting money from arrested suspects, engaging in a scheme of graft and payoffs from local criminals. Here you go, Frank. Oh, here's your collar. Keep it. I had a hunch you weren't going to take it. You know, Frankie, we got a call about you from downtown. No, I ain't saying who. They just said you, you couldn't be trusted, you know? Because I don't take money, right? <laughs> Frank, let's face it, who can trust a cop who don't take money? I mean, you are pretty weird, you know, kid? And with that call and all, the guys were getting a little worried. I told them you were okay. I knew you from the old 2-1. You'd never hurt another cop, right? I mean, you'd never hurt another cop, would you, Frank? <sighs> Depend on what he did, you know? That's the wrong answer, Frank. He attempts to quietly root out the corruption in his precinct, but it's not isolated. And he discovers there's no real institutional interest in fixing the problem. Holy mother of God! Frank, we wash our own laundry around here! Oh, yeah? Now you could be brought up in charges for I this! I always thought so, but the reality you is that we do not wash our own trouble, laundry! Sir, it just gets dirty! You are in trouble! I don't care if I'm in trouble! I don't care who gets it anymore, including myself! On its face, Serpico plays like a vital counterpoint to movies like The French Connection and The 7-Ups unapologetically dramatizing the corruption and rot of the NYPD. But you have to look a little closer. 
the movie ends with a speech from Serpico. This is Zach Vasquez again. It's clear that the movie is making this point too. And that's that policing is a inherently noble profession. And that even a department as bone deep corrupt and as large and unwieldy as the NYPD in the 70s could function the way it's supposed to, if only it could rid itself of its bad apples. The term bad apples pops up a lot when you talk about police corruption, brutality, racism, murder. Nobody ever uses the entire expression. One bad apple spoils the bunch. To its credit, the final takeaway from Serpico is that the department can't be fixed, that an honest cop can't survive, and that his work is ultimately for naught. He's basically fragged, shot in the face in the line of duty by his fellow cops. He talks to the media, he talks to the NAP Commission, and he gets the fuck out of the NYPD. And what kind of cops does he leave behind? You heard of the NAP Commission? This is a clip from The Super Cops, directed by Gordon Parks. Well, it's an outfit being set up by a noble mayor to find corruption in the NYPD. Nobody likes that much, even internal affairs. It's also based on a true story of two NYPD officers constantly in trouble from the brass for being too good at their jobs, fighting crime too hard. They're treated like superheroes by the movie and the press at the time, who dubbed them Batman and Robin. But they're treated with suspicion, if not outright contempt, by investigators from the Knapp Commission, who attempt to trap the super cops in a bribery sting. Trollman Greenberg, I'm Lieutenant Stratton. I arrest you for taking a bribe. Good. Patrolman Price, I'm arresting you for offering a bribe to an officer. Hey, wait a minute. You can't arrest him. You're under arrest. Well, I ain't. Lieutenant Strabbleshit. Stratton! Whatever in shit, I arrest you for conspiracy to bribe an officer. Now lean against that counter. You damn lunatic, I'm attached to the NAP Commission. You get yourself against that counter, Nick! That counter, motherfucker! You got no exit! You hear me? Target! The police woman? That's right, Buster. With the NAP Commission, too? Right again. All right, I'm arresting you also for entrapment and conspiracy. The Super Cops was released in 1974, the year after Serpico, and it reads in effect as a clapback, an explicit anti-nap screed, and an apologia for cops who go with their guts, bend the rules, and get things done, in spite of the interference of the upper brass and oversight organizations. And very few movies saw things differently. Oh, bullshit, you could have had a career. You just had to louse everything up. What was so wrong if a couple of cops made some extra money? Everybody makes extra money! Shit, yes, and move to Connecticut and live in a rich fucking house? All I had to do was keep my mouth shut and play the game and ride the train, right? Robert Butler's Night of the Juggler, from 1981, is on its surface a fairly typical exploitation thriller in which a divorced father breaks the city apart to find his daughter, who's been kidnapped. It's kind of a proto-taken, with James Brolin in the Liam Neeson role, but his character is a former NYPD cop who, like Serpico, testified against his fellow officers. And when he needs their help to find his daughter, they're not terribly receptive. They bounce me in and out of every fucking precinct in this city, and I got you to die for it! Hey, listen to me, you lame idiot. You're supposed to be a cop! Miserable scum! up and ratted on your fellow brother officer to protect your own mr boyd scum like you don't belong in the force and its screenplay slyly weaves in other pieces of the real 70s history 
of New York City and the NYPD. I heard all about you in the 22nd Precinct. A little too smart for your own good, huh? So when the city went broke and they laid off all those cops, I gave them a chance to get rid of you, right? You know, my whole career, I've never seen anything but good cops. Lumet, meanwhile, returned to the NYPD that same year with Prince of the City, another story of a department whistleblower. But his hero this time, Danny Cello, played by Treat Williams, is a much more complex protagonist. Because unlike Frank Serpico, he willingly, often gleefully, engages in the acts of corruption and graft that he eventually reports. We're going to lock him up and we're going to take his fucking money. Fuck him, fuck them, and fuck you. Fuck you. (laughs) You guys are winning in the end anyway. We're out there selling ourselves and our families. (laughs) These people we take from own us. <laughs> I know what you guys think of us, but we're the only thing between you and the jungle. And so again, as with Serpico, even as Lumet's film is exposing the rot of the NYPD, he still makes the case for its necessity, its nobility even. And if the department is corrupt, the DA's office and the feds, whom Danny works with, are no better. But Lumet wasn't done. In 1990, he wrote and directed Q&A from a novel by Edwin Torres, and this time he was making no excuses. It begins, its opening scene features a hero cop, played by Nick Nolte, shooting an unarmed man in the head without warning and coercing witnesses into saying he was armed. He is, to put it mildly, a piece of work. Oh, look it, fuck it, it's no secret. I'm believing kicking ass. I've kicked ass in the 3 2, the 2 5, the 3 0, the 3 4, the 6, you name it. But I'm respected. I mean, my first night on patrol, 147th and Lennox, I told those niggas on the corner, I said, when I'm on a post, the baddest motherfucker on the block is me. <laughs> and then some jackass gives me that sticking gun shit. He said, you motherfucker, I shoved that stick up your ass. I said, okay, asshole. I hand him my partner. We go in the alley and wham, bam. That scumbag loses his teeth. He goes to the fucking hospital, right? <laughs> but he's not just some bad apple. He and several other cops are tied into a whole network of organized crime. If I go down on this one, I'm taking everybody with me. But most crucially, the Boy Scout of Lumet's narrative, the young, green, reform-minded assistant district attorney who seems, through the entire story, poised to take this bad cop down and expose the whole rancid business, he can be bought. With information about his father, a celebrated cop himself. Your father was dirty. He was dirty as a gum. Nothing big, just penny any stuff. You know, free meals, place to coop. For a while, he was a bad man or a bad in the South Bronx. And normal stuff. He took home 100, 150 a week, that's all. Well, what a cop. I mean, like me, he was the first to the door, the window, the skylight. I mean, he knew there was animals out there. He knew there was a line that the niggas, the spits, the junkies, the faggots had to cross to get into people's throats. He was that line. I am that line. So in the end, the dirty cops get off scot-free, a scandal is avoided, and nothing changes. We'll bury it. What? It's too big. We'll bury it. You you can't. Yes, we can. How? We just do it. Uh, 
It's just a normal Saturday night in the city. Most people will feel good riddance. You've still got, you know, this sort of framing. Here's Soraya Nadia McDonald again. Particularly because it's in the 1970s as, as New York being this kind of like dangerous hellscape that in particular the president has kind of like latched onto in his as you know in his messaging lately about cities and New York in particular but there is this this image of the city that comes from one from the actual like reality of New York in the 70s and I think you know that's one reason why you can sort of have, I think, a a broader kind of permissiveness in watching a film like French Connection or The Taking of Pelham 123 or a lot of these films is that you sort of have that, that cushioning of understanding, knowing like what a mess New York really was in at that time. Now, does that excuse the sort of like fundamental... Uh, kind of like swashbuckling racism that the NYPD expects to be able to sort of operate with with impunity? <laughs> no. <laughs> but as crime declined in the city in the 1990s, that swashbuckling racism, it didn't go anywhere. This is the sound of a protest on September 16th, 1992. A protest that turned into a riot. A mob marched to City Hall, then stormed barricades, manhandled reporters, stomped on cars and blocked traffic. They waved racist signs and shouted racist epithets about Mayor David Dinkins, the first African-American to hold the office, and at black city councilwomen and members of the media who just happened to be on the scene. And this angry mob, 10,000 strong, consisted almost entirely of New York City police officers. What were they so worked up about, you might ask? These cops were here to put pressure on Mayor David Dinkins, hoping he would reconsider his request for an all-civilian complaint review board. In the wake of the NYPD's cases of brutality and murder in the 1980s, some of which we discussed in our last episode, Merritt Koch had to back off slightly from his law and order rhetoric to support civilian representation on the Civilian Complaint Review Board, a key piece of securing the Democratic nomination for his third term. The revamped board, with six civilian members and six police representatives, was introduced in 1986. But the civilian influence did little to change behavior. The police department still dominated the process and conducted most of its investigations internally. It was only after several NYPD officers were arrested for selling cocaine in Suffolk County, launching the Mullen Commission to uncover a broader network of drug dealing and corruption throughout the department, that Mayor Dinkins announced his support for an all-civilian review board. And once again, the Patrolmen's Benevolent Association mobilized, bussing in those 10,000 off-duty officers to protest the all-civilian board as the city council debated its merits. And they had a champion to take the megaphone. The mayor doesn't know why the morale of the New York City Police Department is so low. He blames it on me. That's former U.S. Attorney Rudolph Giuliani. Giuliani ran against David Dinkins for mayor in 1989, but lost, narrowly. Now, he was leading an insurrection of police against his once and future opponent. The reason the morale of the police department of the city of New York is so low is 
Let's assume this is the worst legislation known to man. That's Mayor David Dinkins. It is still no excuse for the behavior that, that at least the reports I've gotten of how they behaved out there today. And I say that Phil Caruso and the leadership of the PBA is responsible and for Rudy Giuliani to, 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 to urge them on, as it were, it demonstrates an irresponsibility on his behalf. The PBA's efforts failed, and a bill establishing the new CCRB was signed into law in early 1993. But by the time it was up and running, and the findings of the Mullen Commission were announced, Dinkins was out of office. Giuliani had lost the battle, but won the war. And in the years that followed his election, Rudolph Giuliani gave the NYPD the long leash he had promised them on that September day outside City Hall. He and Police Commissioner William Bratton focused on so-called quality-of-life crimes, a policing strategy borrowed from a controversial 1982 article by two criminologists, James Q. Wilson and George L. Kelling. The authors argued that these crimes encouraged further and more serious lawlessness because they were physical indications of an out-of-control environment. This theory dubbed Broken Windows, dominated headlines during the Giuliani years, while the mayor and police commissioner quietly ramped up the power and influence of the department's street crime unit. Their aggressive style of policing would result in plenty of arrests and also plenty of racial profiling, shooting, and brutality. These were Rudy's cowboys, and his successor, Michael Bloomberg, did little to rein them in particularly after the attacks of 9-11, increased public tolerance, even acceptance, of racial profiling. The power of the NYPD unions have remained basically unchecked in the years since, even under Bill de Blasio, who campaigned as critical of profiling and police brutality. So it's worth asking, what role has the on-screen representation of the NYPD played in all this? Are these cops who came of age watching film and television portrayals of New York police as cowboys who have to bend the rules to tame these mean streets, just reflecting those ideas? Oh, totally. So of course, if you have like this enormous library of cop movies, <laughs> like that is going to have an effect on the way that little boys and little girls who grow up to be cops see themselves and the sort of like moral parameters of their job. But as Zach Vasquez notes, it's also important not to let that become an excuse for fundamentally immoral behavior. I don't think that you can, any more than you can blame, you know, The Matrix or a video game or Marilyn Manson for like a school shooter for sparking that, for, for actually leading. I don't think you can, you can put that on movies, cop movies. I think people find what they want in those characters and those performances. But that if anything, they're, they're really just giving shading to, you know, something that was already there, you know, especially when it comes to policing, you know, those jobs attract a certain people, but they've always attracted those certain people. So maybe the takeaway is how real stories of out of control cops, police brutality, police murder, and so on are received by the public. The role popular culture plays in creating the benefit of the doubt that's typically extended to police. Oh, it's not even just cops anymore. Like, you have a vigilante with a long gun who is walking around Kenosha, Wisconsin, who killed two people, who saw himself basically as someone who had sort of, like, self-deputized, and who is treated that way by them when they encountered him on the street. So it's, yeah, like, it's not just that it affects sort of the 
you know, the kind of like resting heart rate we have when it comes to like how we think about police officers, but like what people actually are willing to sort of get up and do because they have been influenced by that. my current consciousness will makes rewatching certain parts of the cowboy cop genre probably a little more difficult or cringy than it would have been in the past. Right. This is Chris Hayes, host of the podcast Why Is This Happening? French Connection's amazing. I, I love the French Connection also because I'm just like an enormous New York City subway person. And so the the sort of iconic subway scene is is like one of my favorite scenes in all of cinema. Panic in Needle Park, Midnight Cowboy, French Connection, like the sort of movies that capture like kind of down and out, rough around the edges, late 70s, 80s New York. The Warriors is another example from a sort of different perspective. I, I kind of love all those movies just because I love representations of the city through different periods of time and particularly a city that was like just so different in so many ways than it is now. You were born and raised in the Bronx. I was. How did the kind of New York cops that you were seeing uh, in TV and and in film sort of, how did those square with the kind of policing that you and, and people you knew were encountering on, you know, on a daily basis? It's a really interesting question. I mean, you know, the, the idea behind the thin blue line, right, is that like on one side is civilization, on the other is um, chaos, mayhem, and the wild, and that policing is the means by which that civilization is the the boundary of civilizations enforced which was very much like the ethos of all the cop shows at the time probably till now even <laughs> um it's very much like central to cop ideology mm -hmm. i think it's a really wrong-headed and gross view but like i mean my personal interactions i was you know the neighborhood i was in was a was a very diverse neighborhood but it was also it sort of vestigially this kind of working class irish outer borough neighborhood in the bronx and you know there's a lot of like irish cops around in the bars and so in that sense it was like this very fam like an outer borough new york city cop was a sort of familiar neighbor like kind of person in the neighborhood you know like the postman the bodega owner and I didn't like I, you know, again, I'm a white kid, so I, I had a different sort of view on this than than friends of mine who are black. I know that like running from the cops was definitely a thing that we <laughs> that my my particularly black and Latino friends had to do and that we would do um, when we were like up to mischief as 10, 11, 12 year old. I, I think the, the bigger thing, to be honest, and this I think is sort of racially specific, the thing that loomed larger for me as a young white kid in, in, a, in a time of high crime was crime, which was sort of constantly around every corner. Like, particularly when I started going to Manhattan in, you know, the early 1990s, again, when crime rates were very high, just like getting mugged all the time, getting your hat stolen, getting your jacket stolen, getting chased, having someone take your bus pass, knock your wallet out of your hand. Like those were all fairly routine experiences and they were, they were unpleasant, <laughs> <laughs> but again, like unpleasant in the context of like, would I trade my unpleasant experience of having a kid a little bigger than me, knock, you know, say shorty, run your bus pass and me taking my bus pass out and him knocking my wallet on the ground for like a cop pulling a gun on me. 
like I, I I would take my experience right I mean all these all these experiences are so sort of racially um, diffuse and, and refracted do you think the images in popular culture of cops who have to bend the rules to get the job done play some role in how police see the job or how the oh, public yes. sees the job yes you know cultural modeling matters a huge amount and I think that like just I think about all the time like NYPD blue which was mm-hmm. not a movie but a but a TV show but a very like again that was a big deal it was very highbrow it was it was like critically acclaimed the amount of times that it was like a guy couldn't talk so like they beat the crap out of him and then he talked like that those are insidious powerful messages and the idea of like the kind of anti-hero rule breaker like there's a deep reactionary core to this idea and you see it you know constantly being expressed by various founts of cop ideology particularly the police unions of like the the police officer is the only one who really knows what's going on the true defender of democracy and there's these like there's like these 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 sort of pointy-headed liberals and critics and ACLU lawyers who want to get fussy with the rules, but they don't understand that cracking heads is all that stands between us and chaos. And, like, that is central to all those movies. Right. Central. (laughs) Don't listen to the rules. Don't listen to the bureaucrat. Like, and break the rules. And, uh, And that's what, like, true heroism is. And, like, yeah, do we see that reflected in police behavior? Like, absolutely. In terms of the, the the ripple effect to now, you know, you've been covering these issues for a while. You were out in the middle of the Ferguson protests. You've had tons of activists and advocates on your various shows. Do you think that we're at a tipping point now in terms of how the general public, as opposed to activists, view policing with in terms of the degree of cynicism and taking things as their word? Is this shifting right now? Yeah, I do. I do. I mean, I think I think that obviously you have to break this up demographically. But I do think that, um, you know, I think the dawn of the sort of easily recordable interaction has has changed things, altered consciousness, shown uh, a set of interactions, particularly a certain set of white people that have never actually firsthand experienced them. And that's that's been a big deal. I mean, we all remember how iconic Rodney King was, which is a guy happened to have a camcorder with him, which at the time was a fairly rare and expensive piece of technology that people weren't walking around with. But that had an enormous impact at the time. Not enough to convict the cops, obviously. So I I think that that has had a huge effect. I think that, look, racial attitudes among white people are changing, particularly among white people with four-year college degrees, which is not to say that like people for your college degrees, white people are more enlightened racially. Um, it's just a sort of demographic shorthand for where we're seeing the most sort of change in that. And I, I think there's something real happening. And we've seen that, you know, Adam Serwer's piece about a sort of reconstruction moment and, and sort of racial consciousness moment in the Atlantic, I thought was really good on this. But yes, I, and I, I think a huge part too is just like, you know, cops lie all the time. And it's just a fact. And understanding that that and like truly internalizing that has been a hard thing but like to me the ultimate example is like the george floyd the police statement after the george floyd's death which is like a completely deceptive piece of propaganda and then the statement by the buffalo police after martin gugino the 70 plus man is pushed down fractures his skull and spends weeks in the icu where like he tripped and fell and it's like we can see the statement we can see what happened it's like oh my god imagine how often that's happening. And I think that's sinking in with people. I really do. You've talked to people on all points of the spectrum about this in terms of how to solve this crisis. 
of policing and the racism that seems to be baked into it. In your opinion, what is the most sensible fix? Is it reform? Is it defunding? Is it abolition? Is it some combination? Is it something I've never heard of? My sort of higher synthesis, there's like idea that like we should abolish police in the criminal justice system as it currently exists. There's defund police and there's like reform policing. One of the places I've settled as a sort of Venn diagram location is reduce the scope of what police do. Like do, do armed people need to do traffic stops? People with badges and the power to arrest, do they need to respond to that all the 911 calls they respond to, the vast majority of which are complaints that are not in the unified crime report that the FBI reports, right? Like, and we're seeing some experimentation with this. There's a, there's a program in Denver now where they're trying to dispatch people to deal with 911 calls that have to do with people in sort of like addiction or mental distress. So Paul Butler has an idea um, in his book. He's a former prosecutor, law professor in Washington, D.C. He he basically says, like, let's just there's a lot of things that don't need to be criminal that can be tickets. If you apply that logic to a lot of stuff, like there's a lot of things that could be tickets, (laughs) you know, and 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 don't have to involve police and don't have to. So like parking enforcement is sort of an interesting model. No one loves parking enforcement, but also people don't get shot by by parking enforcement people. One of the points that former Vermont police chief Brandon Del Pozo made to me in a recent podcast on why this is happening, which is a podcast I have, is that there are inevitable conflicts over the use of public space that have to be adjudicated in a democracy through some means, and and police are the way that we do it, but someone has to do it. (laughs) Like, oh, a bunch of these people are doing this thing outside my store that I don't like. Like, can they be there? Like those, those, those are just the natural conflicts of public space and public life. My, my sort of higher synthesis is look for places to reduce the scope of policing such that police can be focused on, you know, preventing, pursuing violence and harm as opposed to the full panoply of things they do now. And, and that, that's, you know, that I think is the, my sort of starting point for thinking about it. Now, there's also this enormous accountability problem that I think, you know, I'm not sure how you deal with that. Um, that's a trickier one because attempts at doing it haven't worked that well. And I also think that there's like one of the things we're seeing is there is a kind of blue flu soft work slowdown that's happening in a lot of these cities. Yeah. And it is having a fairly predictable effect of, I think, violent crime going up. And the reason for that, I think, is that, look, even if you make the abolitionist argument, I don't think anyone would say, well, if you just took all the police off the streets tomorrow with nothing else put in place institutionally, like, would you see more or less violence? I think you probably would see more violence. Like, like so if you just withdraw policing as a kind of like, well, you don't want us to police, we want police, like, there are going to be some negative consequences to that. The, the, the idea is to fill the space. Like, those spaces have to be filled. Negotiating public space, co- responding to calls of distress, having the state be attentive to the concerns of its citizens. Like, all of those are spaces that have to be filled. Do they have to be filled with police? Are there other ways of filling them is the question. And that, to me, is sort of how to think about it. probably seen the amateur video we pulled that audio from it's from a protest in brooklyn kind of like the one i'm at now on may 30th 2020 one of many in the city and throughout the country 
following the police murder of George Floyd. No If you haven't seen it, the video shows the first one, then two NYPD vehicles pulling up to a barricade with their sirens on and lights flashing. A crowd of protesters is gathered on the other side of the barricade, and they don't move. It's a show of force, an act of protest. And instead of backing up, there are no pedestrians or cars behind them. The police vehicles lurch forward. The imagery is upsetting on its own. Police officers bound to protect and serve barreling into a crowd of people when they are in no danger. But it's especially potent in its echoing of the video of Heather Heyer's murder by a white supremacist who similarly rammed his car into a crowd of protesters in Charlottesville three summers earlier. But that's just coincidental, right? The NYPD isn't a white supremacist organization, right? Plenty of historians and pundits have compared the events of the summer of 2020 to the summer of 1968, another election year when all of the uncomfortable undercurrents of American life, American violence, and American inequality seemed to bubble up to the surface. Not long after that summer, The Atlantic magazine published a special supplement titled The Police and the Rest of Us, featuring an article by Seymour Martin Lipset titled why cops hate liberals, and vice versa. In it, Lipset writes, There's an increasing body of evidence which suggests an affinity between police work and support for radical right politics, particularly when linked to racial unrest. This was written in 1969. During the presidential campaign, George Wallace was unmistakably a hero to many policemen. John Harrington, the president of the Fraternal Order of Police, the largest police organization in America, with over 90,000 members and affiliates in more than 900 communities, publicly endorsed him. And Wallace has reciprocated this affection for quite some time. During the 1964 and 1968 presidential campaigns, he frequently referred to the heroic activities of the police and denounced the Supreme Court and bleeding-heart liberals and intellectuals for undermining the police efforts to maintain law and order. The police were pictured as the victims of an establishment conspiracy to foster confrontationist forms of protest and law violation, particularly on the part of Negroes and student activists. Lipset also notes significant police presence in the John Birch Society, in the National Fight Against School Integration, and in the Ku Klux Klan. In 2016, Donald Trump was elected president of the United States on a platform of openly racist and blatantly authoritarian rhetoric. Throughout his first administration, he has maintained and amplified that rhetoric. Throughout his current campaign, he has adopted the sloganeering of Wallace and, more notably, his successful rival Richard Nixon in that 1968 campaign, Law and Order. And he has loudly and unequivocally supported police and threatened the safety of those who protest them, all the while himself committing crimes of all stripes right out in the open. And in September of 2020, the Fraternal Order of Police, representing more than 355,000 members, announced it had unanimously voted to endorse Trump's re-election. Three weeks earlier, Trump accepted the endorsement of the Police Benevolent Association, the PBA, representing 24,000 rank-and-file NYPD officers. In announcing the endorsement at a Trump campaign event, NYC PBA President Pat Lynch said, I cannot remember 
when we've ever endorsed for the office of President of the United States until now. That's how important this is. I guess he's just their kind of guy. Sure, he's kind of a cowboy. Doesn't go by the book. Bends the rules when he needs to. But sometimes, folks, that's what it takes to get the job done. From Fun City, I'm Jason Bailey. Fun City Cinema is inspired by the forthcoming book, Fun City Cinema, New York and the Movies That Made It, out in fall of 2021 from Abrams Books. Fun City Cinema is written and hosted by my friend Jason Bailey. And producing co-hosted by my friend Mike Hull. Special thanks to today's guests. You can read Soraya Nadia McDonald at The Undefeated and follow her on Twitter at Soraya McDonald. And while you're there, follow Zach Vasquez at Zach underscore Vasquez. Chris Hayes hosts All In with Chris Hayes on MSNBC and hosts the podcast, Why Is This Happening? His most recent book is A Colony in a Nation, and he's on Twitter at Chris L. Hayes. Thanks to Meg Kelly for coordinating that interview. Extra special thanks to Karina Longworth, who played Pauline Kale. Her podcast, of course, is The Essential and Influential. You must remember this. You can follow her on Twitter at Karina Longworth. An additional special thanks to Consigliere Rebecca Dryden. Our website is www.funcitycinema.com. If you'd like to see some of the clippings and images referenced on today's episode, you can follow us on Instagram at funcitycinema. Follow us on Twitter. I'm at Jason-Bailey, all spelled out. And Mike is at Fifth Column Film. And if you like this podcast and would like to hear more of them, you can support it on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash funcitycinema. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Jason. And thank you for listening. Anything you say can be used in a court of law against you. Amen.